as we listen to God's word read. The scripture reading this morning is John 11, verses 1 to 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, when I was about 12 years old, I went to my first funeral. Uh, it was at least the one that impacted me the most and has stuck with me even to this day. My grandfather, uh, who we called Pop, had had a really difficult year uh, with brain cancer. And it was really, really hard to watch his body and his mind uh, slowly fail him during that time. And I remember the service, uh, the funeral service was on a rainy day. It was actually a Valentine's Day. And we held the service and then we did a graveside uh, service as well, and I remember as a young boy, 12 years old, saying goodbye to my grandfather before his body was lowered into the ground. And I remember it for a lot of reasons, but most acutely for this reason, because I remember walking away that afternoon, and for the first time in my life, I felt the tragedy of death. I didn't fully understand it, but I felt it. I remember feeling, and again, I wouldn't have put it this way, but the absurdity of death. I remember thinking, so my grandfather, who, who lived and, and grew up, and he fought in World War II, and he met a girl, and he got married, and they had kids, and he found a job, and everything that goes with that, and then one day, it's just over, and it's done. He's just gone. The permanence of it hit me. I know this is a really sad way to start, but it's real. 
Some of you are nodding along because you can remember the first funeral that had that kind of impact for you. And perhaps some of you, even right now, are not remembering the first funeral, but the last funeral that you went to. And the pain and the grief that maybe is still fresh along with that. Here's why I bring all this up Jesus in John 11 is going to a funeral, his friend is dead. And John, who wrote this gospel, was a disciple of Jesus, and he was an eyewitness to everything Jesus did. But he really slows down and takes his time here in chapter 11. If you've been reading John with us for a while, you know John can tell a story quickly when he wants to, but he doesn't do that here. He takes an entire chapter to tell us this story because there's something here we need to see. This is, by the way, our last sermon in John for a while. We're going to take a break after this. Uh, and go to the book of Ephesians, but we're, this story, this last story, going to a funeral is the last thing Jesus does publicly before he enters Jerusalem to begin his last week before the cross. It's this story, this moment, that's the last thing John wants on our mind. And what I want us to do and see is to watch Jesus as he goes to a funeral. What does he think? What does he feel? What does he do when he goes to the funeral of his friend. And what does that mean for us today? So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth book in your New Testament, chapter 11, starting in verse 1, which begins like this. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and uh, her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, if those names sound familiar to you, in particular Mary and Martha, it may be because you recognize their name from another gospel account by a guy named Luke. And in Luke 10, uh, Luke tells us the story of Jesus teaching in the home of Mary and Martha. And if you remember, Mary sits at Jesus' feet and learns as a disciple while while Martha is playing host. John points out at this, this same Mary will anoint Jesus' feet and clean them with her own hair in an act of worship. That, by the way, is recorded in both Mark and Matthew, the other gospel writers. But John won't tell us that story for another chapter. We don't hear Mary anointing Jesus' feet until John chapter 12, but he assumes you already know who she is. In other words, John is pointing out, he's hinting here, that this is a pretty famous family by the time he writes this gospel. John assumes, I think, either that we have read Mark, Mark's gospel already or that we've heard of these people before. Either way, the reason this family is so famous, I think, is in verse 3. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, in one sense, right, Jesus loves everybody. He loves with a divine cosmic love that we can barely comprehend. And this may sound weird to say, but at the same time, Jesus in his earthly ministry, he had friends. He had people that he spent extra time with. Uh, For example, we know that Peter, James, and John, among the twelve, he would pull aside and have extra moments, extra time with them. Here too, I think this family meant something special to Jesus. He spent time with them. He liked them. He trusted them in ways that he didn't just trust anybody. He loved Lazarus as a friend, perhaps even as a brother, and something is terribly wrong 
with him. So the sisters, they send word to Jesus, who is probably up north in Israel on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. You probably can't read this map, but that kind of burnt orange-yellow section there in the top right is an area called Batania, which I think perhaps John in his gospel has called Bethany across the Jordan. He, start, he actually, the first time he says that in, in chapter 1, it's a different Bethany than the Bethany where Lazarus is, which is near Jerusalem, down here in this green section near the bottom. It's a little confusing. Those are two separate Bethanies. There's a lot of debate about where exactly Jesus is when the sisters call to him. It isn't really important to the story, but I think it's likely that he's far away from Jerusalem, which is, again, that green area there at the bottom. And he's far away because he's made so many enemies there already. It was dangerous for Jesus now and the disciples to be in Jerusalem or anywhere near it, including Bethany where Lazarus lives. But the sisters are so desperate, Mary and Martha are so desperate for help that they ask for it anyway. They know the danger and the risk to Jesus if he were to come near Jerusalem and he were caught. But at the same time, they know Jesus' power. They've seen what he can do. And so they ask for his help. And here's what Jesus does, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now the way this reads is like this. Because Jesus loved this family so much, and this is now the second time John has told us how much Jesus loves this family, Because he loved them so much, he waited two more days before doing anything at all. That's right. Jesus waited. He waited. Which makes absolutely no sense. I mean, just think about this. Just put yourself in this position. Imagine you have a loved one who's dying in the hospital, and she needs an organ transplant immediately, or she's going to die. But you found one. You found one her body will accept. It's just a few miles down the road at another hospital. But every second matters. And so you ask them, we need it now. And and eventually, after hour after hour, the doctors stop answering your phone calls. They won't answer your questions and they won't tell you why. Can, Can you imagine the growing panic you would feel? The fear, the confusion, and then eventually the anger. Now remember, for two whole days, these sisters sat by their brother's bedside as he died, slowly before their eyes, watching the horizon for Jesus and his disciples, who was waiting two more days. Now, there are fewer things, if you're a follower of Jesus, you you know that there are fewer things more difficult in the Christian life than reckoning with Jesus' timing, waiting for him. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with other followers of Jesus who are more mature, who have stronger faith than I do, or or perhaps ever will, who continue to wrestle with Jesus' timing. Jesus, where are you? What are you waiting for? And most of the time, I don't know what to say. I don't understand either. The only explanation here we get in verse 4 is when Jesus says, "This, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That phrase, the glory of God, which in John's gospel, remember with me, is not so much the glory due to God, 
but something God will reveal about Himself. His glory is revealed to us. That's how John uses that word. Something we have to see to believe. Something that apparently requires two more days. Hold that thought. Verse 7. Then after this, He said to His disciples, let us go to Judea again. Judea being where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live, and also where Jesus' enemies are. So after two days, Jesus is ready to go to see this family. But now Jesus knows that this is no longer a trip to go visit a sick friend. It is a trip to a funeral of a dead man. Jesus tells the disciples plainly, despite their fears of the Jewish authorities, that Lazarus is now dead. That's verse 14. And we're going to his funeral. In fact, that's what Jesus seems to have been waiting for. So the disciples leave with him for this four-day journey from where they are down to Bethany near Jerusalem, and they're prepared to die with him if they're caught. That's, that's what Thomas says in verse 16. He says, this is it, boys. If we're caught, it's over. But we're going with him. He's going, we're going. So they arrive at the home of Lazarus, and the funeral is still underway, even though we know Lazarus has now been dead and buried for four days. This is not unusual for this time or this culture to mourn for the dead for many days. Even the guests of the funeral are still there with these sisters, many of them from Jerusalem, which is just about two miles away, to support and love them. They've lost their brother. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So Martha runs out to meet Jesus, but Mary can't do that yet. Verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now Martha, God bless her, is doing her best to not show Jesus her disappointment or her confusion or her anger or her grief. She has the right answers here. But I can't get over the first thing she says to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here. If you had been here. It's the same thing her sister Mary will say to Jesus later in verse 32. Jesus has to call for her. She comes out to him. Everyone's eyes are on this interaction. And this Mary who Jesus loves and and, 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 who... She's hosted him in her home who knows how many times. She's hung on his every word. Who, as Luke has told us in his gospel, sat at Jesus' feet to learn everything he had to say, now falls down before him and repeats the same agonizing confession as her sister, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not be dead. And that's all she could say. That's it. It's perhaps a version of something you too have said to Jesus at some point. Lord, if you had been here, if you had done something, if you had intervened, if you'd listened to me, Jesus, if you'd showed up, my life would be different. But again, Jesus' response to these sisters tells us that he sees the situation completely differently than they do. To Martha, who who can at least tell Jesus that she knows Lazarus will be raised, you know, someday maybe. Jesus says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Jesus does not arrive at this funeral disappointed that he's too late. He does not claim to be a doctor who missed his appointment, or a surgeon who made a mistake, or a healer who missed their window. Jesus does not arrive at this funeral believing in the resurrection power of God. He arrives at this funeral as the resurrection power of God. That is his claim. And he asked Martha, do you believe this? He sees what's coming in a way that neither sister can, and in ways that you and I never do in our lives either. He's making a claim here to divine identity and unimaginable power. He claims here to be the, to be the life giver that no one and nothing can stop. And notice this, with all the power due to him, as the only son of the Father, which has been John's argument from the beginning of his gospel, that that's who Jesus is. Does Jesus come to this funeral and laugh? Does he go, oh, Mary and Martha, it's going to be fine. No. Does he show up at this funeral and start lecturing people? Hey, everyone, you don't have enough faith. Let's sit down and do a Bible study. Let's start over. No. Does he roll his eyes? Like, you people, how many times do I have to tell you who I am and what I can? No. Verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. The creator of all. The Alpha and the Omega. When he comes to his fu- the, the, the funeral of his friend, what does he do? He weeps. He just, he just cries. Now remember, this is all his plan. This is his idea. This is his moment. Nothing has yet happened that he didn't anticipate. He knows better than anyone what he's capable of. But his friend is dead. And Mary and Martha are in pain. And he can't help but weep with them. He can't help but feel the same deep and profound sadness that we feel when we lose someone. We must never get over the Lord of the universe who made all things and holds all things weeping here. We must always remember that what this tells us is that Jesus has wept and will weep, I think, at every funeral service since the foundation of the world. Jesus is not immune to our grief. He's not immune to our pain. But he does more than weep. Keep reading, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Now that phrase, deeply moved, we've seen it before. In, earlier in verse 33, Jesus was first deeply moved and troubled there. But here in verse 38, Jesus now sees the tomb. He stands face to face with the grave of his friend and is deeply moved again. And I hate to say this, but it seems to me that that the major English translations of this verse seem apprehensive or nervous to communicate what this word means. Deeply moved here is one word in Greek, and it isn't nearly so tame as the phrase deeply moved is in English. It It means to quake with anger. 
The image it conveys is like a war horse snorting before it charges into battle. That's the idea. When Jesus comes to this funeral and stands before the tomb of his friend, which has held him now for four days, Jesus rages with anger. That's the idea. He rages with anger. So much so that John mentions it twice. So profound an impression it made on him as he watched Jesus in this moment. Now, to be sure, anger is something we've probably all felt around death. It it is one of the stages of grief, after all. But there's something different about this anger. There's an intensity to it, and the placement of it right here in front of the grave. We have to remember that if Jesus is who he says he is, that the rage we're just getting a glimpse at here has, has been a rage that has built and built and built since from ages past, a man and a woman named Adam and Eve took forbidden fruit and invited death into God's good world. Jesus does not need anyone in this moment to remind him that this is not how it's supposed to be. He's the one who made a world where this never needed to happen until our ancestors and we were deceived and we broke the whole thing. The ferocity of Jesus' anger only makes sense in light of that. And I imagine people watched him, they're startled by his anger to see Jesus turn so quickly from weeping to fist-clenched, red-faced, panting with anger before this grave. must have seemed strange to them from the outside looking in, but not when you realize that for Jesus it has all come down to this. This moment, this confrontation, is something he has been waiting for for longer than you and I can even imagine. And that that tomb in front of him is more than a a sad reality of of human existence. That the tomb before Jesus is not simply the inevitable end of human life that must be accepted and welcomed, as we're so often told. For Jesus, that tomb is an enemy. And it's a mocking enemy at that. The way Jesus responds, it's almost like he can hear death whispering to him from this tomb, Lazarus is mine. And I've had him for four days. And so Jesus in verse 39, he is not messing around. He says, take that stone away. But Martha can't believe it. All she can think is, Jesus, do not do this. Don't dishonor Lazarus like this. Don't make us see him as he is now. Don't ask me to do this. Let me remember my brother the way I want to. Jesus, by now, don't you know there'll be an odor, there'll be a stench. Jesus, don't you get it? It's over. You didn't come. So we put him in the grave, and it is what it is. Don't make this, Jesus, any worse than you already have. That's verse 39. But Jesus will not relent. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? There's that phrase again. The glory of God. The reason for everything Jesus has done since the beginning of this story. The glory of God. Jesus says, Martha, roll that stone away. There's something you and your sister and everybody here has to see to believe. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Jesus waits for reasons that are often inexplicable to us. Jesus weeps when he sees us weeping. Jesus rages when he confronts the cancer of death in his good world. And we needed to see all of that in this story. But what Jesus needs everybody to know, what Mary and Martha could not believe, is that Jesus, when he confronts the grave, has already won. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus won. The glory of God is this. In Jesus, there is no grave over which Jesus cannot triumph, including his own and including yours and including mine. And when we believe he is the resurrection and the life, that when we believe he's the Son of God, he too will one day call us by name. We'll speak over every tomb and every grave and every urn and every ash that we've become and say, come out, and there's nothing and no one who can stop him. Do you believe this? This is his question. Do you believe this? It's the same question he asked Martha 2,000 years ago. The question hasn't changed. Do we believe this? If we do, we cannot go to any funeral the same way ever again. Yes, we can still be confused by Jesus' timing. We can weep and rage at the tragedy and the injustice of death like Jesus did. But we know Jesus wins and we have seen the glory of God. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Not like Martha, right? Well, one day. No, now today I am the... That in your life, and as frail and as broken as it may feel to you now, that he can empower you and lift you up and transform you, that he can take any loss or grief or pain and turn it into joy, into dancing, and into victory. Do you believe, as one commentator put it, that if Jesus had not said Lazarus' name, every tomb would have opened at his command? Come out. And that one day, they will open at a simple word from his mouth. Do you believe that Jesus did not go to this funeral to say goodbye to his friend? Do you believe that he went to this funeral to say goodbye to funerals. If you believe this, you have life in his name. And even though you die, yet shall you live. Let's pray to him now. Jesus, your victory over the grave is our only hope. Your voice crying, come out, is all we have. And I pray for those here who do not yet know your voice that they would come to know it. And I pray for those here who do know your voice that we would hear you speak words of comfort to our grief and to our pain. That you weep with us 
that you rage with us, but that you've won for us. Jesus, we pray this in your name.